Uh, so thankful for uh, you coming out to worship today. Um, Joel, Joel chapter 3, verses 9 to 17 is our text that we're going to look at this morning. And uh, that's found on page 873 in the Red Pew Bible. I um, invite you to follow along. The outline is in the bulletin as well, if that can help you as well. That's available for you. Um, I know my wife uh, just enjoys listening, so uh, some of us prefer to fill things in as we go, so everyone has the opportunity to do what they feel is best for them. Joel 3, 9 to 17. We're coming very quickly to the end of Joel, and uh, so we pick up verse 9. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war, stir up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them come up, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears, let the weak say, I'm a warrior, hasten and come all you surrounding nations and gather yourselves there, bring down your warriors, O Lord, let the nations stir themselves up. Come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit in judgment, or to judge, and all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to His people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you may know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion. My holy mountain and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. Now, when I was a young, younger Christian, um, it was common in my church experience to hear pastors preaching on prophecy or what would occur in the future, and they would often do so with uh, newspaper clippings of events that were occurring uh, around the world, and uh, that things have not changed since I heard those sermons back when I was a youth. There are still things going on. There are uh, current events, and there are earthquakes, there are famines, there are wars, there are rumors of wars, and yet we are told that these things are indications that we, we are in the last days. Uh, this comes from the Gospel of Mark, uh, Mark chapter 13, verses 6 to 8. Uh, Mark says, many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray, and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Uh, this must take place, but the end not yet. I think there's a scripture slide here, Leah, is that right? No? Oops. It made more sense in my office this week, I'm sorry. But nations will rise against nations, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places. Uh, there will be famines. And lastly, Mark says this, and of significance, he says, these are but the beginning of the birth pains. 
And the problem of reading the Bible with a newspaper in hand is that there's so much difficulties, there's so many difficulties in the world, there's a near continual stream of stories that look like we're in that beginning period of birth pains, but those birth pains have been going on for a long period of time. Now, the ladies among us will remember those false contractions, if you've had a child, those false contractions, I think they call them Braxton Hicks contractions, and uh, they can occur maybe two, three, four weeks out, maybe longer. Uh, Someone will correct me after the service, I'm sure. But it's the body preparing itself for the real contractions that are going to take place, the real pain. But yet they startle, they cause one to say, oh, we're getting close, we're getting nearer. And even though those contractions may be termed false, they are nevertheless a real signal that a baby is coming. And in the same way, the devastations that we've recently witnessed, say in the country of Turkey, are real kinds of warnings and even remind us of other warnings that we have observed through the years. Uh, in the highlights, uh, some, of the, some of the things that uh, remind me, I was watching uh, in 1989 the World Series, the Battle of the Bay, in which the San Francisco Giants were playing the athletics. And do you all, do some of you here remember what happened during that World Series? It was quite remarkable. It began like a little vibration. And within minutes, the power went out in the stadium. And I had to resource uh, Gary Peterson, who wrote of that count, and he has a longer memory than myself. And he said, I was armed. He was in the stadium, and he said, I was armed with a Sony Watchman, a handheld TV with a screen about the size half the size of today's smartphones. I had fresh batteries and I turned it on and it took what seemed like forever for me to find a signal from a local TV station. But when I found one, the magnitude of the devastation was beyond what I had imagined. It would be long, slow minutes until we found out about the fires in the San Francisco Marina District and the collapse of the Cypress Structure Freeway. It got quiet in the room Some of you also remember this. But even before the announcement occurred, he said, I was certain of one thing. There would be no more baseball that day. What Joel describes are cataclysmic events that will interrupt and shut down all the games in society. And as Joel talks about these coming events, they crescendo to almost a triple exclamation point as he's going through his, his prophecy. And each time we see an act of God occur or we have a close call, we are actually given an opportunity to give thanks for God's mercy towards us to have another day, but also another day to call others to repentance and to trust Him for the salvation and eternal life that they desperately need. Close calls mean another opportunity to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The door of salvation continues to remain open, and it's open until the appointed time in which it will be closed. And it will close at the time of His return. Mark 13, 32 says, 
But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven or the Son, but only the Father. And the idea that I want us to focus on as we look at this almost one of the last prophetic sections in Joel is this, that at the appointed time, Christ will come with great power and glory. All the world will see him in the clouds, and at that point, they will recognize him as who he is. And so as we walk through this text, I want us to see that there is a prelude, there is a battle that will be summoned, there will be a gathering of the nations uh, prior to his coming in the clouds. And let's look at verses 9 and 10 and see that there is an appointed time for the battle. There is an appointed time for the battle. I'll read them again. It says in verse 9, Proclaim this among the nations, consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near and let them come and beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears and let the weak say, I am a warrior. Now in the days leading up to this, this, the coming of the Lord, there is going to be a gathering of the nations against God's people, Israel. Joel looks through the, the, the currents of future time, and he's, he's observing, and he's seeing something that God has allowed him to see. He's looking at this valley that's called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. He notices that there are, in that valley, there's an array of military equipment, there's insignias, there's flags from all over the world, and they're gathering. And the nations of the world are here aligned together against the people of Israel. They are they're against God's people. But notice who is stirring them up. It is the Lord himself who is stirring them up. In prior paragraphs, we have discovered that the Lord is the one who utters his voice in front of this great assembled army and is drawing them towards Israel. Notice in Joel chapter 2, we, we have to look back a little bit, so I know it's a few weeks ago since we saw this, but in Joel chapter 2, verse, 10, verse 11, we see at the end of this description of a military gathering, it is the Lord, verse 10, verse 11, the Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? And here in chapter 3, we're seeing the voice, and there's this, 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 this call to consecrate and to bring up these troops. It is, if you look at verse 12 in chapter 3, let the nations stir themselves up. It's God who's commanding them to stir and to rise and to gather. And it's like he's like a general standing out in front of the troops and like parade day, and he's walking down in front of those troops, or he's, he's riding his horse with a sword drawn, and he's, he's, he's giving that pep talk to like get themselves ready to go to war. Now, when we are seeing movements within the world, we're oftentimes tempted to call those things conspiracies. 
However, Isaiah, who said this thousands and thousands of years ago, he said, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but let the Lord of hosts be your dread, and you shall honor him as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. This is a call to all of us to recognize where all of these movements and events occur. When you see nations moving, maybe there's realignments taking place on the international stage. Perhaps you see balloons in the sky. Perhaps you see chemicals wafting through the air. (laughs) Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Rather, put your hope and trust in the Lord. He is the one who stirs up. He is the one who's moving for purposes that he alone has not told you. He is moving people for purposes to bring himself glory. If he startles and shakes the earth and the world and the countries and the nations, he's he's warning us and he's providing an opportunity for a merciful return to the Lord. The movement in these verses is described as a total mobilization. The nations are encouraged to do what's like almost like a metal drive. Uh, refashioning, refashioning their um, agricultural implements and turning them into weapons. Uh, during the Second World War, I've seen photos of, of, of large open trucks going down the streets of Philadelphia and New York and people taking all their old pans and pots and throwing them in the trucks and they were bringing all this together to make tanks and, and weapons for warfare. That's kind of what, what you're seeing here is that everyone's taking their precious metals and they're turning into implements of war. It's total war. And the call, interestingly enough, to beat those plowshares into swords and pruning hooks into spears is, is familiar to readers of the Old Testament, particularly what Isaiah said. Isaiah said to do the opposite of that. He said, beat your swords and put them into plowshares. Take your uh, weapons and turn them into pruning hooks. (laughs) It's significant. And this is intended to show us that at this time, there is going to be a call for war that is as guaranteed as there will one day be a call for peace by the Lord of hosts. Joel contrasts the appointed time for warfare with an appointed time for peace upon the earth. And there will be a time in which the Lord himself will roar from Zion like a lion and defeat all of his foes. Romans 11:25. Paul says that this won't occur until the time of the Gentiles has come to pass. Paul says that a partial hardening has come upon Israel, and this is so that there might be an opportunity for the Gentiles, but yet there is also in this expression, fullness of the Gentiles, something very interesting and very ominous at the same time. 
And I want to point out three things that are particularly remarkable that Paul tells us. And the first here in recognizing that God has allowed a partial hardening of Israel is that we can understand from this that God may allow a particular people group or individuals to be resistant to the gospel. If he is doing this to Israel, then he is very well able to do this to those who are around us. But yet this is something that God has allowed, and it is a partial blindness that, may not, that will not last forever. In other words, as you look at people around you and you see they're hardening their hearts, don't be discouraged. This may be allowed by God, and it may not last forever. There's a second point here that I think is helpful in what Paul says. God may allow wickedness to grow while being merciful to allow people to repent and to believe the gospel. The fullness of the Gentiles coming in. There may be a prolonged long-suffering of God to allow wickedness to grow to its fullest degree. It may be that while God is saving the Gentiles, He is also allowing wickedness to grow to a point in which He will bring judgment upon the whole world. Where in the world does Paul see all of this? About, him, about God hardening the hearts on the one hand and then being merciful on the other. I believe he saw this in Abraham's the covenant that God made with Abraham. When God made a covenant with Abraham to to preserve his people, Abraham was fearful. There was droughts in the land, and there was famine occurring, and he was afraid to go down to Egypt. And God told Abraham that when he made an irrevocable covenant with him, that his offspring would be sojourners in Egypt. And they would be afflicted in Egypt for 400 years, but then they would be free to return to the land... And this is what he said, because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Blindness, exile, captivity are all instruments in God's mighty hand to accomplish his glory upon the earth. God is infinitely wise and he is able to sort through all the millions of things that are going on in this world. And at the right time and at the right moment, he can stir all the nations up to do what he intends to do. There is an appointed time, yes, for battle, but as this progresses, I want you to see there's also an appointed place for judgment. Verse 11 and 12. Verse 11 and 12. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations. Gather yourselves there. So this is gathering to the valley. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Now, just a little word about what these two verses are doing. The first verse is a kind of prayer, a kind of prayer by the prophet Joel calling God to act, to hasten, to to draw this out, that this would not linger, it would come 
at the right time. And uh, in verse 12, it is a response to Joel in what he prayed. And the Lord answers in verse 12, he says, let the nations stir themselves up. Let them come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. This command is effortless for the Lord, and I think it's as essentially the same as God in the very first week of creation saying, let the waters under the heavens be gathered up into one place. That is nothing too hard for God. He, in a voice of word, he can declare the oceans to gather and to come into existence. And this is a phrase that's parallel here. The same God who ordered the creation, he can order the nations and like let them all gather up into one place. At this point, we may look at the world and think to ourselves, how in the world could this all happen? But I want to tell you, we all shouldn't be shocked anymore because panic at large causes people and nations to run off cliffs like lemmings. We just witnessed the near universal stoppage of industrial manufacturing for a space of three weeks as unheard of. But the whole world in lockstep together shut down everything all over a rumor. Absolutely unmanageable. It only takes a rumor and millions of people make a run for the stock market. Where do these rumors, where do these fears, where do these dreads come from? Well, the appointed place is described in this text as the Valley of Jehoshaphat. The valley or plain, a space wide enough, surrounded by mountains, is particularly not known by us, but we know that the name Jehoshaphat means the Lord judges. But we also recognize that the name Jehoshaphat belongs to a king, a particular king who, who in Israel's history had an experience in which he had to make a leadership decision as nations were gathering and coming. It was reported and it was rumored that they were coming towards Israel and particularly towards Jerusalem. And while they were still a great way off, the clouds and the caravans and news was coming that this massive army was coming, multitudes were coming towards Jerusalem, Jehoshaphat set his face to seek the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah, and he prayed this prayer. Listen carefully. This is probably one of the most disastrous leadership decisions that anyone could possibly make. He prayed, O oh Lord, will you not execute judgment upon them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. I said that as far as the world's concerned, that would be the most disastrous leadership decision that anyone could make. 
but actually it is one of the most important leadership decisions that anyone could make. To admit humbly that we don't know what's going on, but we have to put our eyes and trust in Him. Now I'm going to make a long story short, but the whole city listened and responded to Jehoshaphat. They went out with arms to go meet, and basically they thought themselves to be walking into a slaughter, and they started to sing. They started to sing, give thanks to the Lord for his great love endures forever. And as they began to sing and to praise God, the Lord set an ambush. And another nation, anticipating the arrival of their own enemies, went out to meet them in the plains. And they destroyed one another. And the noise of battle and the tumults were observed through watchtowers. Uh, people went up high level. They could see in the distance what was happening. And after the dust settled, the Jews went down onto that battlefield and they spent three days taking spoils of war off of the dead. They had so much, they couldn't even carry it off the field. And then on the fourth day, they assembled in what they called was the valley, they probably renamed this valley, the Valley of Berakah, which means Valley of Blessing. And they gave thanks to the Lord. See, those nations went out for war against Israel, but God intercepted and mediated the steps. The book of Proverbs wisely tells us that the heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. See, the nations of the world will assemble looking to rid themselves of the Jewish plague forever. <laughs> they think they will bring blessings upon themselves, but instead they will inherit a catastrophe. They will inherit the judgment of God as the Lion of Judah roars from his holy mountain. See, Israel will panic and be filled with fear, but then they will see him whom they have pierced. They will mourn and they will turn their eyes to him and repent. So there is an appointed battle, there is an, an appointed time, there is also an appointed time for harvest in verse 13. Verse 13 says, Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Those who have read the book of Revelation, maybe recently, might recognize that these images also show up there. The imagery is gruesome, but I believe John's revelation is based upon a lot of these observations of Joel. Vats of wine overflowing, a sickle harvesting the, the lives of those who have raised up themselves against God. And the reason for all this vat of blood flowing over is because their evil is so great. They're sinning against God with such a high hand. They're not wanting to be at all submissive to Him. Revelation 14, verse 17 to 20 says this, 
Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who had authority over the fire, and he put out with a loud voice to the one who had a sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Now, 1,600 stadia is equivalent to 184 miles. If you can't picture what that would be like, that's actually from Honesdale to Gettysburg. It's a long swath of area. A horse's bridle, is that about that high-ish? Those horse lovers, about that? That's a lot. And that, we might say, isn't that excessive? But the problem is, is that our observation and our comprehension of evil is so small. We don't appreciate the holiness of God and how offensive our sin is. God is, though, a perfect judge. He is long-suffering and he allows plenty of opportunity to repent and turn to him. Deuteronomy 32, 4 says, the, law, the rock, that is referring to the Lord, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. There is an appointed time for the harvest, but there is also, in this text, we see an appointed time for the verdict. A verdict, verse 14 to 15, we see this, this multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon are darkened and the stars withdraw its shining. Now, please notice I did not say that there's an appointed place for decision. I said an appointed time for a verdict. And the word that's translated here is not like, I'm going to make, I'm not sure where I'm going, I'm going to make a decision here. But more of there's a fixed decision that's being handed down from the judge. Like a, a, a decision has been reached. There is a verdict that is coming to a head. Now we're all very sensitive people, and we all recognize that we are all sinners. I don't think that anyone would say in this room, I've never sinned. And we feel very squeamish about executing something on the level of a capital punishment. And I understand that. And we would often, we would rightly say with Jesus, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. I know that in the days of the early colonies, the first 13 colonies, it was actually a common practice that if a premeditated murder conviction could not be substantiated, that they would reduce, the, reduce it down to a manslaughter, which would not require a capital execution necessarily, because there was not a shadow of a doubt. There was no, like, there was no ability to 
confirm this definitively. And so in issuing a manslaughter verdict, they would then take the perpetrator's thumb and they would brand on the thumb the letter M. So that if they were to migrate to another colony, say they were in Pennsylvania and they migrated to South Carolina and some mysterious happening occurred in which a manslaughter charge was against them a second time, then at that, that point they would say, okay, there's a pattern being established. It is very likely that his offense was a, of a capital nature. And so that system, as harsh as it might sound to be branded, was actually somewhat merciful in the process and speaks to the reluctance that we all have of placing a verdict upon people. The difference between us and God is that God is without sin. He is the only one who is able to cast the stone. And yet He very kindly allows us opportunity to repent and turn to Him. He tells us that our sin debt has already been paid. And for those who refuse to bend the knee to Christ, at this time, specifically, the verdict will come down as the lights go out upon the earth. As Mark says in Mark chapter 13, 24 to 26, Mark says this, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. A beautiful statement to God's majesty at the end of this. But this brings us to the last aspect in this prophecy, and that is there is not only an appointed time for the verdict to come down, there is also an appointed roar and refuge in the Lord. Verse 16 to 17 says, The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to His people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. How is it that God can be the one who roars and also be the one who is a refuge? You know, we consider the, the weightiness of this prophecy. We also see the hopefulness in this prophecy. We're reminded powerfully that God can be both the Savior and also the judge. It's a powerful truth. It's frightening and also comforting at the same time. I stopped short in Mark 13. I stopped short in reading that text describing Jesus coming back in the clouds with great power. But there's another aspect to this in which after the stars fall and Christ appears, then it says they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then He will send out His angels and gather the elect from the four winds. 
for the, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Mark describes this very succinctly. Matthew goes into greater detail of what that would entail. And we hear the, that Jesus will be there and the angels will be going, collecting, and he will be separating the people one from another as a shepherd separates the goats from the sheep and the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats upon his left. And this draws us, really, and we ought to ask ourselves, will we be sorted with the sheep? When the Lord roars from Zion and he utters his voice, will we be, will be, be judgment that we are hearing or a call to refuge? Now, I want to encourage you to look to Christ because that answer could be solved for you this morning. Those who put their faith wholeheartedly and trust in Jesus who paid the penalties that you and I incur, if you put your faith and trust in Him exclusively and turn away from your sins, then you have nothing to fear. And I say wholeheartedly because I, I, I don't want you to under, misunderstand that this is not a call to perfection. This is a call to being honest about your sin nature and need for a Savior. Those who are honest about their sin nature have the right frame of reference by which to go to God in the first place because they know their need of grace. And they begin to appropriate that grace into their hearts and lives and begin to live a life that's different from the way that they used to live. These people will begin to, to manifest the fruit of the Spirit and these people will begin to love the church. They will specifically help those who are suffering under the weight of persecution. And to love the church is to be an evidence of the grace of God in your life. See, God is a refuge, but He is also a stronghold, and He will lead those who have put their faith and trust in Him into His holy mountain. Verse 17, it's beautifully tied in here, actually, with the words that we find in the book of Revelation, in which the holy city, the new Jerusalem, comes down with Jesus at the final consummation, and the dwelling place with, of God will be with man, and we live in beautiful harmony within the holy mountain, and we have access to the holy mountain. John says something very, very similar here, as I think, to Joel, and he says in Revelation 21, verse 27, he says, But nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. How do we know whether or not our, we have been written into the Lamb's book of life? We all want an objective way to know, and I can understand that. But Thomas, Thomas, who we would call the doubting Thomas, is probably a lot like many of us. 
We want that objective. We want that. We want to know whether our good deeds will outweigh that which are our bad deeds, and, and we construct these little systems that we try to have these ledger lines, and we're trying to, to know. You know, some days I feel more saved than other days. That's speaking from my own heart. But Jesus said to Thomas, he said, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Where does the conviction about what has not come, come from? It is the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit teaches our hearts not to fear, but to look to Christ, who is our refuge and our hope. And when the Holy Spirit takes root in your heart, it produces that conviction so that you too can pray as John prayed at the end of the book of Revelation. He heard all of the horrors of the future, and he said this, Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. And at the appointed time, Christ will come with great power and with glory. The Lord Jesus, the righteous judge, he will award you and he will draw you into his, his new city. All who have loved his second coming. If you love this world more than you love the thought that Christ is coming again, you're not going to be able to say earnestly from the heart, Come, Lord Jesus. You'll wander off into myths and you'll wander off into ways to satisfy your own passions in this world. You'll stop running the race. You'll stop loving the church. And when the tremors are felt around the world and as the nations rise up, you'll start be looking around, but you won't be looking in the right direction. Remember that the Lord is near. He's right at the door. Do you whisper within your soul, Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Let's pray.